be seated. Friends, as we come to open the word together, let me pray for our time. Father in heaven, we do ask at this hour, in these moments, you would come and meet us to transform and conform and renew and lead us on your way. Father, we want to walk in the good paths that you've laid out for us. Would you use this time to open our hearts to your invitation, to your call, to your leading, for us to walk the path that you've laid out for us and find our lives there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to look together at Psalm chapter 16. So if you want to go ahead and turn there in your pew Bible, it's on page 453. When James asked me to preach this morning, he told me that I could literally preach on anything that I wanted to, which I think may have just been him saying that he was really happy to have a week where he didn't have to come up with a sermon. Um, But as the Lord has worked and prompted me over these past few weeks, this is where he led me. And particularly one morning, I woke up, and it's one of those mornings where the wires in my brain just didn't seem like they wanted to fire right, and was distracted, was um, thinking about the upcoming holidays, things that we needed to do, getting ready for my family to come in town and be here with us, thinking about work that needed to get done before the holidays hit, thinking about upcoming uh, priorities for January, and was just really unable to focus on any one thing in the midst of all of that. And that particular morning in the reading plan I was on, the Lord led me to this psalm and really confronted me with its beautiful and joyful simplicity. Uh, And so as we read together, uh, would you look for that? Look for that one singleness of mind that the Lord is calling us to. In Psalm 16, David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. And as I thought about the simplicity of relationship with God, I thought about the holidays as a time... I think of intended simplicity, where really what we set out to do is to enjoy those people around us, to be able to sit and talk and share. And yet, so often, they end up as times that are full of distraction. came across a study this week that said that the vast majority of Americans would say that the thing that makes them the happiest about the holidays is their uninterrupted time with family and with friends. Makes sense. Uh, But then the study went on to examine how people actually use their time around the holidays. 
And it set aside November and December from the rest of the year to study what is it that people actually do. And they found that in those months of November and December, people actually spend less time with family and friends and neighbors than they do in the rest of the year. Instead, they fill that time with shopping and decorating, distraction and busyness. The, The author of the article said, Americans spend increased time on stressful activities they claim to dislike and decreased time spent on activities they say make them happy. A time of simplicity becomes a period of distraction. For each of us, we know that a distracted and busy mind has a hard time seeing and experiencing that one thing in front of us, whether it's holiday time or not. And so as we seek this, uh, this vision of God, this experience of relationship with God, we have to be honest that at the same time we see so many other things. One author remarked, and this was 20 years ago, that in our culture, the demands being placed upon us could be summed up as, look at this picture, read this headline, listen to this argument, and feel guilty about not doing enough of any of it. Our minds and lives are pulled right and left. And so that morning, as I was comforted by this psalm's simplicity, I hope that you too might find rest this morning, as the psalmist instructs us in a very simple path, and that is that we're to see the Lord, to walk the path, and to find our life. So firstly, we're to see the Lord. The first two verses of the psalm give us a picture of the psalmist doing exactly that. In his opening address to God, he's he's face to face as he exclaims who God is and as he makes request of him. And this address uh, clues us in that this is a psalm of confidence. This type of psalm is somewhere between a psalm of lament in which we find ourselves in the pit, unsure of whether things are going to turn out all right, and a psalm of thanksgiving in which we've experienced God's goodness and deliverance. Somewhere in the middle, the psalmist finds himself praying this psalm of confidence. And the the theme of this type of psalm is is a confidence in God's willingness and ability to deliver from adverse circumstances. And that kind of confidence requires seeing the one that we're confident in, requires seeing him as he really is. It made me think about the difference between simply hearing about someone and seeing them. And I was reflecting on a particular relationship for my wife and I. About two years ago, she was able to start traveling to Nicaragua to spend time at an orphanage. And there was one teenage boy in particular that has grabbed a hold of her heart. And for about the last two years, as we began to date and and were engaged and married... I heard over and over about Luis, about his story, about his love for God, about the potential that he had to be a leader of men. And I heard my wife's heart for him grow and grow, wanting him to be part of our lives. And she made three different trips to Nicaragua last year to spend time with him, and and each time um, became fonder and fonder. And often she would ask me, you know, what do you see as your role with Luis? How do you see yourself uh, connecting to him. And, and most of the time, my response was really, I don't even know him. So it's really hard 
for me to know what my relationship with him is going to be like. When all I've, I've, I've heard about him from you, I've heard good things, but I, I myself haven't experienced him, haven't seen him. And then just a few weeks ago, Michelle and I were able to travel uh, down to Nicaragua together and to spend parts of, of five different days with Luis. And they were days filled with, with laughter, with conversation, with soccer, with time at the lake, with uh, enjoying meals together, with sharing the ups and downs of life. And on the other side of that experience, now I can say that I cherish relationship with him as well. I want him to be part of our lives. I want to be in communication with him. I want to help to meet his needs. But for that to be the case, I had to go from hearing about him to seeing and experiencing. The psalmist, David, is one who's gone from hearing about God to seeing and experiencing. And so he gives us three simple things in the opening of this passage that we too should see about God. We should see that he's personally involved. David refers to God as his refuge, his Lord. Not just a transcendent on high God, but an eminently, personally present God. We're also to see a God who is in charge. Yahweh. The God of Israel, Elohim, the creator God, in charge of the big picture as well as the nitty-gritty. A God who cares about every facet of our lives and is working and controlling those details according to his plan. We're also to see a God who is good. David looks to God and says, I have no good apart from you. This one may be the one that gives us the most struggle. If we're honest, we all spend so much time and energy looking for good everywhere that we can find it except for in God himself. The fact that David could say, I have no good apart from you, it shows us that he's experienced God as good. He hasn't just heard a sermon about it, but he has trusted God and has seen good come from it. One old saint who had experienced the same thing that I read this week says, you cannot prove the promises of God in advance, but if you live them, they're true, every one. As we wrestle with God's control, His personal involvement, His goodness, He's asking us to take a risk and live as if those things are true and watch them prove themselves to us. He's asking us not just to hear about him, but to experience, to see. And the psalm shows us that seeing him, experiencing him, leads to a life of walking with him. So secondly, we're to walk the path. Verses 3 through 8 give us a number of descriptions of what it looks like to walk this path. Firstly, in verse 3, we we simply see that we're to walk with others. That this Christian life isn't meant to be one in which we go it alone. It isn't simply me and my Bible. It's a covenant community in which the psalmist says he finds delight. He says these people of God are the excellent ones. They help him to see the Lord, to stay on this path. For us, if we're to walk in the way that God intends, we must walk with others. 
This path also means walking with God. And that's what gets the bulk of the attention in the following verses. Walking with God first means that we're not to run after other gods. We get a a firm warning here that there's a temptation. As we experience needs in our life, things that we find necessary for our well-being, other gods are calling for our attention and saying, I'm the key. I'm the way you're going to get that. For the Israelites, a, a perpetual struggle was whether they were going to have enough rain for their crops to grow from year to year. And the Canaanite god Baal says, I'll give you rain if you'll worship me. And many of them were tempted and ran off after the one who promised to take care of them, to provide for their well-being. For us, we, we see our well-being as so tied to our acceptance, to our pleasure, to our comfort. And there's so many things vying for our attention saying, if you'll run after me, I'll take care of that need. And so in our marriages, as we struggle to experience acceptance from our spouse, we we hear that voice saying, an affair is what you need to feel accepted. We go to bed at night uneasy, uncomfortable. And pornography says, I'm the relief that you need to feel okay about life. We find ourselves called to by these false gods. So this morning, if you find yourself tempted to run after another god, if that voice is beckoning you saying, I'm what you need for your well-being, hear this word of the Lord that the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. These false gods turn out to be both deceptive and destructive. What they promise, they don't fulfill. So walking with God means not running after other gods, but instead choosing Him as our satisfaction and our sustenance. David uses images of a cup, his chosen portion. This this God is one who has full satisfaction in Himself, who existed eternally as Father, Son, and Spirit, sharing everything amongst one another, and now saying, all that I am, I'll share with you for your enjoyment. The difficulty we find ourselves in is that often we're not able to take in this enjoyment as we're meant to. And so, we're faced with a decision. Do we decide that the problem is with God and run after one of these other gods? Or are we willing to humbly admit that the problem isn't with the cup, it's with me, the drinker? face the difficulty of, of not experiencing God as our, as our satisfaction until we fully embraced Him. And yet we're hesitant to embrace Him because we don't yet experience Him as our full satisfaction. Well, walking the path means being willing to admit that He's not the problem. We are. Walking the path means receiving His provision in our lives. The image here is of of lines being drawn, of designating the places in in our lives. And this reminds us of when the Israelites first entered the promised land. And these lines were essentially the property lines that divided up the land for this tribe, this clan, this family. 
Each tribe was given their own portion, their own inheritance. But the way verse 6 is worded, it reminds us of Numbers 18 verse 20, in which the Levites are told, it's going to be a little bit different for you. You're not going to have any land. You're going to have to depend on me to provide everything for you. You're going to have me as your inheritance. Reminds us that as we receive provision from God, it's not always what we expect or ask for. It might not be as visible as we would like, but it doesn't mean it's any less real or any less good. And those times when we lack the physical provision that we're asking for can be a reminder for us that ultimately what we're made for is the spiritual provision of having God as our inheritance. And when He does give us those physical things that we're asking for, we have to remember that they're merely to serve as pointers, as reminders of tastes of the kind of inheritance that we have in Him. Walking this path also means trusting God to be the one who wards off attack from others, the one who keeps us going on the path. David says that God's the one who holds his lot in place, who keeps him from being shaken. Walking the path means trusting that God keeps and secures and guarantees our destiny. I was reading a story a few weeks ago about an author who had gone to spend extended time with a man who had wrestled with addiction for years and now decades. And this man, when he was a teenager, was one of the best basketball players in the country, had a scholarship to the University of Georgia to play, and was thought that he would be the next big thing in the NBA. And yet his cocaine addiction prevented him from ever even stepping foot on Georgia's campus. That summer before college, his life was derailed. The path that he thought he would take was gone. And for 25 years, he's wrestled with this addiction. So this author went and spent about six months with him to see what's his life like. Has he been able to make any progress? Has he been able to return to to the good path? And what he experienced was a man who was in and out of rehab, in and out of shelters, in and out of church. What he saw was a man relying on his own strength to kick what had taken him away. And at the end of the article, he said, in my experience with watching this man battle addiction, the sad endings never had to stay sad, but the happy endings weren't guaranteed to stay happy either. Friends with our God, who promises to keep us secure, we know that the endings do stay happy. So it means we can trust Him. It means we can receive His counsel, His instruction along the way, because He intends for our good. So as we spend time in His Word, letting the Holy Spirit work in our hearts, we may sometimes be forced to face hard truths about ourselves about our relationships, about our sin patterns. But we can trust that these are good and gracious words meant to keep us going in the good paths. Friends, we can walk with God the path that He's laid out for us. But what about the difficulties that come along the way? Acts chapter 2 presents Jesus 
as the model of living this way. It quotes several verses from the psalm to say that, that Jesus is the one who perpetually saw the Lord, walked with Him, enjoyed Him each and every day. And yet we know that this Jesus was a man of sorrows, confronted with difficulty, and certainly none more so than dying on the cross, entering the grave, seeming to be abandoned, all seemed lost. Friends, I want you to think of this psalm as a grave song for Jesus. Think of Him in that grave singing, My heart is glad, my being rejoices, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Staring Him in the face is corruption. And yet Jesus prays this song in the midst of His greatest difficulty. So we too, even if we've lived the path, will be faced with those times when it seems as if all is lost. Maybe the holidays are a reminder that all seems lost in your families, with your kids, with your siblings. Maybe all seems lost at work right now. Maybe all seems lost in your spiritual life and you have been going down one of those other paths for so long that you don't know the way back. Friends, Christ prayed such a psalm of confidence as this for us and was ultimately rewarded rescued in his resurrection and so he points us to stay on the path and so finally to find our life in God the closing verses of this psalm give us a picture of full life of gladness and rejoicing security and protection spiritual and physical whole shalom this life with God that we're promised isn't only the goal, but it's the way to live now. This God who offers us life isn't only the God of the future, but the God of the here and now. And this life that He offers, it's relational presence with Him. It's receiving His good gifts and finding joy in them. Calvin says about this final verse that joy and pleasure are found both in what He is and in what He gives. So we're reminded that our relationship with God is the key to rightly pursuing the good gifts of this life. We know ourselves to be people who frequently mess this up, who choose the gifts over the giver, who follow the paths of our selfish desires. I was watching a movie this past weekend of a family where... The, the sister had just broken up with her longtime boyfriend. Her life seemed to be falling apart, and her brother invited her to come and live with him to give her an opportunity to get her life back on track. And so, what he was offering was relational presence with his family, the good gifts of a bed to sleep on, time to reflect, time to look for a new job, a new start. And yet, over and over, as she lives with her brother, we see her not walking the path laid out for her, but instead following those self-destructive desires that so often creep in when all seems lost. And so she runs after every man who will give her attention. She pursues every substance that numbs her pain. And finally, the movie brings us to Christmas Eve, that time when 
The family's supposed to be together. Relationships are to be enjoyed. Gifts are to be shared. And yet it's so painful that the girl runs off to another bar, to another man. Comes back at three in the morning, out of her mind. Puts on a pizza that uh, she falls asleep while it's cooking. Smoke fills the house. So her brother wakes up. His wife wakes up. So what have you done? We've offered you so much and this is how you've treated us. She runs away in shame knowing that, that she hasn't enjoyed the relationships they've offered. She's abused the gifts they've given. So Christmas morning comes and she hasn't returned. Christmas lunch, her seat at the table is empty. Finally, the, the wife says, I'm, I'm going to look for her. We see her alone, head down, ashamed when her sister-in-law walks in. With tenderness, with grace, she sits with her and says, Do you want to come back and open presents with us? And so friends, this Lord that we worship, this Lord who shows us the path of life, is one who comes for us, who invites us to once again see Him, to return to the path, to find our life. But if you're in one of those places of shame and fear this morning, afraid even to look up at him. I want us to be reminded of the beautiful simplicity. The psalmist says, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. This idea of God's presence is, is the Hebrew word for face. And so what we're reminded of here is that finding our life, it doesn't start from us seeing him. It starts from him seeing us. One of the joys for me in marriage is to wake up on those days when work is stressful, when the to-do list is long, and to look over and to see my wife's sweet smile, her countenance of joy, being in the presence of one who beholds you with a smile of acceptance. And Jesus was able to live under his Father's smile each and every day. Until that good Friday when the smile disappeared and the father frowned on the son so that he could smile upon us. So friends, this morning, if you struggle to look up and to see the Lord, rest in this, that the Lord sees you and does so with a sweet smile on his face. And in this season, amidst the clutter of unwrapped gifts in the living room, leftovers in the fridge, wrapping paper flowing out of the trash can, more football than we could possibly watch, work that beckons us back, maybe amidst the clutter of sin in your own heart, maybe facing the temptation to follow another path. Remember, friends, this morning that the Lord sees you. He sees you with a smile and so invites you to see him, to walk his path and to find your life. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your gracious smile this morning. We're thankful that you have bestowed your unmerited favor on us because of your love, because of the work of the Son. We ask this morning that we might look up and see you. We might walk the path of trust with you. We might find our very life of joy in you. Would you give us these good things this morning? Help us to know you deeply to love one another well, to cherish this season as one of beautiful simplicity, 
of knowing your smiling gaze upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.